Our scripture today is Acts 2, 40 through 47. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and and distributing them, um, the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, I've been a Christian and gone to church basically my entire life, and every church I've ever been a part of, I've had the same two experiences. Experience one has been that of like radical, deep belonging. So the church that my wife and I attended while we lived in Chicago when I was in seminary, Trinity Community Church, I was the worship leader there, and we had just incredible friendships um, there and and for a part of that time, my wife and I were in a season kind of suffering, and, and we uh, our first uh, pregnancy ended in miscarriage, and and I remember just that church being incredibly comforting and pastoring us in really profound ways. And I mean, I, the first Sunday after we had the miscarriage, Missy was actually in Indiana. I was in uh, church by myself. And, uh, of course, that was the Sunday where they had the kids' choir, like, get up and sing. And so I'm just like, I'm a mess, and the, and the audience is crying. And, and this guy just comes up to me. We were decent acquaintances. He didn't know me super well. Just came up, and after service, like, Tim, what's, what's wrong? And just cared for me really well in, in that moment. And, and uh, sort of at the same time, there were two friends of ours at that same church that had miscarriages at the same time. And there was a group of people who just committed to pray for us and all three of us who had uh, miscarriages, we all gave birth about 10 months after that um, to three boys because of this church that prayed for us and cared for us. It was this incredible belonging, incredible care that we experienced. I've experienced that in every church I've ever been a part of. So that's one. My other experience of every church I've been a part of is that, that the church has depleted me. So at the same church where I was the worship leader, I had a... I had someone who could do their job, do the job better than I could do, and so she let me know each week the way that she could have done the job better than me. So, you know, one week it was too many hymns, the next week it was not enough hymns, one week it was we pray, we didn't pray enough, the next week we didn't pray uh, in the right ways, and it was like, she's like my own Goldilocks, kind of, and I just wanted her to find the right bed so she could fall asleep and get some rest, because she needed rest. Um, and so, but, I mean, and my guess is like all of you, if you've been a part of a church, you probably experienced both. Belonging, depletion. And I'm not naive, right? As much as we pastors want to think like we got all together and our church is just, we're perfect. We, listen, I know at this church, you have both experienced, I hope, deep sense of belonging, but I am more confident you have experienced someone who said something they shouldn't or, deplete, or you were frustrated in some way or we made a mistake. We sinned because we're sinners. So how does the church become more about belonging than depletion. 
And you read Acts 2, and it's like, this just rubs salt in the wound, right? It's like, where's that church? I want to go there. Like, that sounds really fun. And that's not this church, so where, like, where do we find that church? And I want to push into those, those questions this morning. How do we become a church of radical belonging? And I want to look at Acts 2, kind of through two questions this morning. One is, what's, what is so different about the church that enables this kind of belonging? Because, I mean, just being trained, like, I, my wife and I, in our most painful moments, have been ministered to by the church in ways our closest friends and families who are not Christians cannot come close to. I mean, perfect strangers who are Christians have cared for us in ways that people we have known our whole lives have not cared for us. So what is it about the church that makes that possible? Like this radical belonging. And then two, like how do we cultivate that? How do we be a church that, that is that? Before we talk about that, I want to pray because I've just been a cold. I've had like a cold for eight days and just not, my brain's not thinking clearly. So I don't want to say anything that gets me fired um, today. And uh, I just want to pray for God's help more than that. Uh, but let's pray and then jump into Acts 2. Uh, Father, we want, I want this church community to be a place where people belong. That's really hard to do, God, because we're just, we're sinners, and we mess things up, and so we just, we gather around Acts 2, believing in who Jesus is and the power of his spirit to make this church into everything you want us to be. God, do that, and use this text to do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so question one, what's so different about the church? And I realize a lot of you may hear that and you're thinking, oh, hold on a minute, Tim. The church isn't different. It's like every other community. It has problems. It has some good things. But the church is not really unique in all that, that respect. And it's just like you're wrong. And I just want to say if you think I'm wrong, you're wrong. Like humbly. Like, and not like you're wrong like I disagree with you. I mean like historically, factually, you are incorrect. Because the church, and this is like actually historically, factually true. The church grew and expanded and welcomed people in in a way that no community has in history. And so Kenneth Scott Latterette, he's an early church historian, he talked about how, like, listen, you, you have to deal with the fact that Christianity spread and exploded in a way that was, I mean, just earth-shattering. That unlike every other religion in the first century, every other political philosophy, cultural way of seeing the world, only in the church do you see the rich and the poor come together and commune together, eat together, be with one another. It didn't happen in Greco-Roman culture. It didn't happen in other religions. Those were, they were separate. And like other religions in the first century, uh, century uh, Christianity attracted all different races. So by the time we get to Acts 13, Christianity is going to be in Africa. It's going to be in Asia. It's going to be in Europe. It's going to be spreading throughout the Middle East. Christianity quickly transcended major racial barriers. No other religion had done this. No, the Greco-Roman culture did not do this. Unlike other religions in the first century, Christianity attracted both the learned and the unlearned. So you have brilliant people like Justin Martyr writing uh, philosophies about why Christianity is true. And then you have just normal folks who are working class coming and growing and becoming Christians. Other, unlike other religions in the first century, Christianity gave a new sense of freedom to women. So much so that in Acts 18, you have uh, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, teaching Apollos, who is a pastor, a church planner, like teaching him theology. And Luke, by naming Priscilla first before Aquila, is suggesting she was the primary teacher. So Priscilla, as a woman, is teaching a pastor theology. Like other religions did not give that sort of positional opportunity to, to women. And so Lateret looks at all of these realities and he asks this question. 
It says, no other religion took in so many groups and strata of society that the question must be raised, why this unprecedented comprehensiveness came to appear first in the world in Christianity? That's a really difficult question to answer. And social scientists give lots of of answers to that question. I want to let Acts 2 answer that question for us. And I think in Acts 2, there are three things going on that give reason for why Christianity quickly took on all kinds of people. Different races, different, uh, broke down gender lines and socioeconomic lines and racial lines. Why that happened so quickly, I think is here in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. And the early Christians had kind of three qualities to them, which was vulnerability, generosity, and praise. So what, how is the church a different kind? Well, the church is a different kind of community. How? How do we cultivate it? How do we become that as a church? And I want to start with talking about vulnerability. So verse 42 says, And they, the, the disciples, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this word devoted, it shows up twice in the book of Acts, or twice here in Acts 2, actually, in verse 42 and verse 46. And it's, pre- it's present in verse 46. It's actually not translated in verse 46, which is, is too bad because it's an important word here. And, and what the word means is, is it means to stay by, to persist with, to remain with, especially to persist in difficult circumstances. And so what do they persist in despite difficult circumstances? Well, Luke is explicit. He says three things they persisted in. One is devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They read and they studied their Bibles. <clears throat> that if you read through the New Testament, almost all the New Testament books that we have um, are either written by or directly connected to an apostle. So we still, to this day, when we read the New Testament, we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles had one Bible. It was the Hebrew Scriptures. When we read the Hebrew Scriptures, we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And this is like Christ community. We love this one, right? This is our thing. We devote ourselves to the apostles' Teaching. Secondly, maybe not quite as a Christ community thing, but we need to grow here a little bit. But secondly, it's prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Right? I want to see us grow in, in prayer as a church uh, in, in the years to come. But like the reality is no one would push back against that. Of course, the church, they should persist in reading, studying, knowing our Bibles, and praying together. But there's a third thing here that I found interesting that they persisted in. And they persisted in, in the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And that's clearly a reference to, to the Lord's Supper, to communion, but it's beyond that, just eating together. Because in the first century church, the Lord's Supper, it wasn't uh, what we do, which is like a little hit of, hit a little, little hit of bread and grape juice and it's a little, little snacky and that's it and we move on. Like that's, it was actually a full meal because when Jesus first did the Lord's Supper, it was a full meal. And so the early church ate together a lot. They spent a lot of time eating together. And what's interesting is when, when Luke wants to start with what this community devoted themselves to doing, what they persisted in doing, there's two things we're on board with, reading our Bibles, knowing our Bibles, praying together, and it's the third thing that we're, our culture is having a harder time with, which is eating together. The eating together in Acts 2 is on par with reading your Bible and praying. Why? Because we're a different culture than this, aren't we? In the 1970s, 40% of Americans said they had had someone over to their house to eat dinner in the last month, invited someone into their home. In the year 2000, that number had gone down to 20%. Today, the average American eats one in five meals alone in their car. 
One in four American, uh, Americans eats a fast food meal every day. And as uh, the majority of our family structures, like our time gets busier and busier, uh, the majority of families reported that they share a single meal together less than five days a week. So we can't even eat with our own families, let alone let other people in. And, and so why is that? Why is our culture a place where we're increasingly beginning to eat alone? And again, social scientists, they answer that question in a lot of ways. I'm going to answer it with a story um, because I think, I think it gets at why. And so when I was in, in China last May, uh, Misty had a friend of ours over for dinner, um, Sarah Stula. Many of you know her. Sarah and Marshall came uh, here for about a year until Sarah's job meant she had to move back or move to Lawrence. Um, so it was sad to see them go. But Sarah came over uh, because Marshall was in Europe. I was in China. We were both working. Um, and, and so uh, she had Sarah over. And it was Misty, Sarah, our three boys, um, having to get, uh, dinner together. And after dinner, my boys did what they typically do in, in the summers, which is they leave the dinner table. They go out and they run around on the deck. And they, have their, you know, they do their thing. And so they did that while Misty and uh, Sarah just hung out and talked. And I only share this because Sarah is moved to Lawrence. But Sarah is also the daughter of our senior pastor, um, Tom uh, Nelson, and so there's a little bit of like, you know, we want to make sure things look good and everything's held together and it looks all right and there's nothing weird going on. Um, and then weird things started to happen, which is that we, our boys were out playing on the deck, Missy, Sarah talking, doing their thing, and then my son, uh, who's three years old, runs by the window, uh, buck naked, and screams, I pooped. Uh, which, is, which is exactly what he had done. Um, he, had, he had pooped on our deck. And because he didn't want to come back into the bathroom, I guess. And I get it, right? We all get it. Um, but there is, like, this is a good moment, like, you know, friends being, inv- like, hanging out, and then all of a sudden, like, your child just humiliates you. Um, and, and so to bring this back to the question, why are we inviting people into our homes less? Hold on. Because letting someone, letting someone into your home... Like sharing your table with someone requires vulnerability. They might see something you did not intend for them to see. They might see something that you, you meant to hide. And we want our, the people we know, our family, our friends, we want them to see what we want them to see. And we're very diligent about this with our Instagram feed, our public personas. We don't want people to catch a moment from who we are, that we do not intend for them to see. And yet, if you, listen, people eat dinner with you, think stuff's going to happen. And so we've just withdrawn. And yet, if you're a Christian, this appears to be something unique that the church offered the world. You could come into the church community, and apparently you could share a table with someone who is a different race from you different social class than you, a different educational background than you. And they would listen to you. They would engage you. You could engage them. The church was a place to come and belong and be who you are and be vulnerable. And to be clear, this doesn't mean, like, vulnerability does not mean, like, you share everything with everyone. That's not, that's not appropriate, right? There, there are certain people with whom, um, you know, you, you, can, you can go deeper within, within the church community. And yet there is this sense that the church should have this freedom from needing to project personas. We should be free from needing to like appear a certain way as Christians. Like our church community should just exude the fact that we, we care what other people think, but we don't care what other people think. And you're welcome. You can come in. 
And so what makes vulnerability hard for us in our cultural day is we're afraid that if people see our weakness, if they see our brokenness, they see the things about our lives that are not, they're not lined up the way we want them to be, they won't receive us. They'll push us away, they'll reject us. And it's why the traditionally or typically human beings will only hang out with people who look like them, who believe what they already believe, who think like they already think, because that's safer. It's easier. But the church apparently had a resource that broke those barriers down. The church had a resource that was available to them that meant in 300 years the church did what no community, no religion, no culture had ever done in history. And that resource, it's, it's the gospel, I think. And that's why I say, like, the church is, I think, categorically different. Not because we're better people, but because we have a better resource, which is the gospel. And we're the only ones with the gospel. And the gospel, what it, what it says, what it does for Christians, is when you read anywhere in the New Testament, that if you're a Christian, you are a Christian because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Which means you don't have to earn Jesus' love. You don't have to earn his acceptance. You don't have to be worthy. You don't have to earn your worth to be for him. You don't have to be good enough for Jesus. That's the whole point of the cross, is that Jesus gives himself to you and to me. And so the basis of our community, it is not that we're better people than everybody else or that we've got it figured out like everyone. No, the basis of our community and why we can be a place of vulnerability and people can come in and be received and welcomed despite their brokenness or what they don't want others to see. The reason why that's true of us is the gospel because we believe what makes people belong to our church is not how they fit in, but it's Jesus. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer He said that the church community, it's not something we create. It's a gift given to us. Here's what he said. So Christian brotherhood or Christian community is not an ideal which we must realize. It's rather a reality created by God in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is Jesus Christ alone the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. That what he's saying is if we receive the gospel and the community that should like transcend or come from that gospel, it means, that means church community is not something we create by being really good at doing church. Church community, vulnerability, is something given to us when we believe the gospel. And we believe people don't have to come in and think what we think and believe what we believe and look how we look and talk like we talk. We don't, have, we don't need any of that. Because the way into the community is Jesus, who died for his enemies, who died for us. Where anybody can be made worthy, anybody can be loved, anybody can be received because he paid the price. And so do you see why the church just suddenly welcomed in all types of different people? Why vulnerability was possible. It's because the the early church kept the gospel front and center, and we must do the same. So we need to cultivate vulnerability first, but secondly, generosity. And here's, uh, look with me at at verse 44. It said, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What's important to know from this is this is not 
and this is going to be clear why it's important in a second, but it's not, this isn't communism. It's not like the church said, like, you have to give us all this stuff, and then we're going to redistribute as we think. No, it's free generosity. And that's really important because I think the, probably the thing Christians did that was truly unique among all other religions, worldviews, cultures, all of that in this day is the way Christians thought about generosity. The generosity, the way Christians, it was, it was completely new thinking. That one, Christians thought, well, you, lo- you should love your enemies because Jesus told us to. And no one in this day thought you love your enemies. Because if you love your enemies, then they'll just pounce you. They'll take, right? You, if you get slapped on one cheek, you just get slapped on another. No one loves their enemies. That's a bad way of living. And yet Jesus said, love your enemies. And the church did. Or beyond that, their generosity extended to people who could not repay them. And Jesus is explicit about this throughout, especially Luke's gospel, that your generosity is explicitly to go to people who cannot give you anything back. And you see this here. People giving and selling their possessions freely, distributing um, as any had need. And it wasn't just financial generosity, right? We already talked about it. It was sharing your, your home. It was sharing meals together. It was sharing community together. And this Christian practice of generosity, it goes hand in hand with being a place where vulnerability is possible. And so I want to I I pause and I want to reflect around this question and just introduce a little bit of tension, um, which the question is this. Is who in the church right now are you giving yourself away to? Who in the church are you giving a generosity without expecting anything back? As, I, I just, as a pastor, often we reverse that question. And the question with which we operate within the life of the church is, who is giving themselves away for me? Who's giving something to me? Where am I getting something? Which, of course, always leads to frustration, feeling let down. And I'll speak to that in a minute. I'm, that's not a terrible question to ask, but that's not the primary question we ask as Christians. The primary question we ask as Christians is, who am I giving myself away towards? And it was that generosity of Christians that more than anything changed the world. And this is really hard to get across because there are certain ways of seeing the world you and I have that we just take for granted because we just live in a culture that's been deeply shaped by Christianity. But these were new ideas when the church started giving them out, like loving your enemies. That was a new idea. Generosity without expecting something in return. That was a new idea the church gave to the world. And third, like one of the key ideas the church gave to the world, and, and a number of secular historians have, have begun to notice this, is that human rights was not possible until the church began seeing every human being as made in the image of God, as, as uniquely valuable. And so that's why churches began hospitals. And when kids were left, uh, the common practice in Roman culture in that day was if you had a child you didn't want, you just left it out to expose it, to die, and Christians would go and grab those children and adopt them because they believed those children had rights and value, and we take all these things for granted, but it was the, the, the Christian church's generosity towards those people who could not pay them back is what enabled the church to just transcend all of these cultures and religions in a very fast time. And I want to get back to that as a church. I want to center our life and community around the question, what, who am I giving myself away for? And not, what am, who's giving to me? And I get it. If, if the fear is, well, if, if I never ask for me, then how do I know I'll get cared for? How do I know I'll, I'll, get, I'll get love? And I understand that. But the biggest, the biggest drawback to a church that focuses on how can I, who's giving to me, how can I receive, is that when a new person walks in, someone who's not a Christian, someone who isn't sure this is true, someone who doesn't know that they can believe this, when they walk into a community of everyone saying, I need this and I need that and I'm looking for this, they won't find a community who even noticed they walked in, and 
they won't find a community ready to ask, how can we serve you? How can we, how can we know you? How can we give to you? The question that early church centered around was, how can I give myself away to others? And listen, I, again, you say, well, how do I know I'll get loved on? How do I know I'll, I'll receive? Well, what's, what's our gospel again? Our gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, gives up everything, the riches of heaven, to, to come and to, to save us. Like the center of the gospel is Philippians 2. He, uh, Jesus, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He made himself a servant. That, according to us Christians, is ultimate reality, is giving yourself away for those who cannot pay you back, who cannot give anything back to you. That is, that is who God is. And the early church understood that. They saw that, and they lived with generosity. May we be a church that reflects that generosity. So how do we cultivate being a different type of community? Well, it's generosity, it's vulnerability, and last is praise. I love how this passage ends. Um, Luke writes, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love this. Glad, generous hearts, praising God. And that's what Paul says, or what Luke says, attracted people day by day into the church community. It's a church full of glad and generous hearts. And that should be the foundation of who we are as a community. It's glad, generous, joyous hearts. And I want to be clear, like this does not remove lament. It does not remove suffering or sadness or heart. Like the church isn't like just fake happy. That's not what I'm suggesting. And yet, like Christians, we have a resource to joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of laments, in the midst of everything falling apart. Right? We're not naive or realistic. We know the world in which we live, and yet we believe God gave his own son for us to rescue us, to save us, to give us new heavens and a new earth. He's making all things new. And so we live in the midst of suffering with, with glad and generous hearts. Because, the early, listen, the early church is going to suffer. In just a chapter or two, an apostle is going to be killed. So they're not, like, this isn't just, like, all roses and everything's going great. No, this is really hard. And yet, they, they have glad and generous hearts because they understand. They're living out of the gospel. They're living in community out of the gospel. And so, a question I was just thinking on this week to reflect on for us is, what, what would you say your friends, your family, those closest to you, especially those who don't believe, what would they say has been the primary impact of Christianity on you. If they had to say, like, Christianity's done this for you, what would it be? So for the church, early church, it was, it was glad, generous hearts, praising God. So vulnerability, generosity, praise, that's who I want to be as a church. And I, this is like, I don't want to be like, here's how we're going to do it, and here are the three steps. I don't know. Like, this is, this is complicated, right? But this is the goal who we want to be. And yet, I also want to be realistic because Luke's expectation is not that you're going to stop reading Acts at verse 47. He expects you to keep reading. And yes, you're going to read powerful community in the book of Acts, but you're also going to read of dishonesty in the church. There is racism in the church. In Acts, we'll be in Galatians in April, there's racism there. There's favoritism in the church. The same thing I've experienced, that you've experienced in the church, both radical belonging and depletion, it was experienced by 
the early Christians. This is not some ideal that if we can just get back to like how these guys did it, then we'll be, no, there's always been problems. There's always been belonging and the church going forward and expanding and welcoming people in alongside deep brokenness and sin. And there's a reason for that. Now, I joked about this earlier, and I, I don't want to just joke about it. I joked about my, uh, my self-appointed critic in, in Chicago. But I, listen, I take that seriously. The church, the church is a place where people have experienced deep, deep pain. The church has failed people, and you will see that through Acts. One of my biggest frustrations is when people read Acts and think, Let's just, we just need to be like them again. It's like, are you actually reading that book? Like, there's actually really jacked up stuff in there. Like, just actually read the whole thing. Because there's, like I said, there's racism, favoritism, dishonesty. And it raises the question, well, why, why embrace that mess? Right? If the church isn't an ideal community where everything gets made right and it's perfect, why, why not just like do my own thing and just wait till heaven? Right? I mean, and bigger questions, how can we be generous and give ourselves away to people who might reject us or be harmful to us? How can we be vulnerable with people who may take things that are broken in us and just use that to, you know, point their finger in? And that's why I say, listen, the reason why you can still, we still need to pursue this and still go after this is not because this, these are the best people in Kansas City we could find. The most moral, upstanding city. This is the best community we could. Listen, you're great people. Don't get me wrong. But this is not the best community of people we could find in Kansas City. This is broken. We are broken sinners. And the hope of the church is not that we as a community won't screw up. We will. I promise you that. It's not because one day you'll find the perfect church that will... Just perfectly embodied belonging. You will not. But the reason why the church is worth it, why this place is a place you should belong to and give your life to, even though it's going to deplete you, even though we're going to fail you, is because we have something no one else has. It's the gospel. And it's not just a message we, we yell at people. It's, it's like something that embodies everything about who we are. It leads us to a generosity. It lets us give ourselves away. It leads us to a vulnerability where we know we're loved by Jesus, even if the person across from us fails us. Where we know we can sing praise in the midst of suffering because Jesus turns crosses into resurrection and murder into salvation. The reason why this place is worth the mess is because of the gospel and what it can make in a community that takes the gospel seriously. So what is the gospel, right? What's the gospel? Jesus gave up everything he had to us and we put him on a cross. He gave himself away to us and he got nothing in return for it. The gospel is that Jesus was willing to share all of himself, becoming completely vulnerable, suffering an excruciating public death for us so that we could have a community where we could be vulnerable with one another. All right, the gospel is that we can come into the church and with risk, with generosity and vulnerability, embracing this mess, not because we seek to belong or we might belong or we might create a community, but we believe the gospel will do this work in us when we take it seriously. We believe we already belong to Jesus Christ. We believe we are already worthy in the gospel. We believe we are already loved. We are already made whole through Jesus. And so we come in not as a group of, of only broken sinners who are just going to mess things up. We come in as people who are loved and made whole and have an identity that cannot be taken from us because of what Jesus has done for us. Do you see why Christianity just exploded in the first few hundred years of its existence? Why it transcended racial and socioeconomic and gender barriers and why we as a church often don't? Why we harden those lines 
and leave this gospel that causes or should stir within us a generosity that loves people in a way where we give ourselves away without caring what they can give back. Or we can share our brokenness, not care what people see in us, because we know Jesus is where our identity rests, and we can praise our God no matter what comes. Do you see why Christianity exploded in growth? And I would just say today, no matter what you think of what they've said on Facebook or what they think of the church or what they say of the church, we have friends, we have neighbors, we have family who long for a community like this. They long for the gospel. And so may we create a community that lives out of the gospel alone. And may you help us create it. Let's pray. Father, I, I read in these texts just conviction of, of my own sin and my own failures and my own ways to not live into the kind of community gospel can create. God, I care just as much as anybody else what other people think of me. And I care, I have a hard time often giving myself to people who I don't, I don't think are going to give anything back to me. And God, sometimes it's hard to praise you. It's hard to have a glad and generous heart. And so God, we don't, we don't read Acts 2 and think, we're going to do that together. No, we read Acts 2 and we want more of Jesus to make us whole, to make us right, to firm our identity within him so that we could know we are loved, we have been died for, we have been given for, and we are welcome. We're welcome at his table. God, make that true for us, I pray, through your Holy Spirit this morning. Amen.